and this reminds me of a great athlete in the mid 20th century, uh, Jim Thorpe. And he's widely regarded by, especially old pundits, as one of the greatest athletes of all time. And he had a, a very much a primal natural training method where he would he would ride horses, he would chop wood, he would be out in the woods doing that kind of thing in the off season. And then he would show up for track and field practice and just blow people away. And he was he had that rhythmic training seasonal training program that really worked for him. So that's, that's a good model. That was Frank Ferencic. And you're listening to the just fly performance podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in simply faster's online store. Uh, whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, I and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method. I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So uh, I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the uh, the feeling of training of while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity-based training. Barbell tracking, it provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another show. It's great to have you here. We live at a time where early sports specialization and pressure has certainly led to things like increased injury rates, rampant burnout, and athletes who quit sport early and who really don't find joy in their movement practice. The principle of early specialization and pressure certainly is not something for just young athletes, but also impacts older and more mature athletes. And we can even move further outside of that into saying that a lack of love and joy for movement impacts our society as a whole. In so many ways, uh, not only have we forgotten our roots uh, in terms of movement and being athletes, but we've also forgotten our roots in terms of um, being a moving human being in so many senses of the word. And in failing to connect the dots in our, our movement practice, our sport, our training, and what makes us human, we miss out on not only training results, because that's of what a lot of those of you listening are concerned about, as am I. Uh, but we also miss out on satisfaction, joyfulness and movement, longevity in what we do by failing to study our ancestral nature. Today's guest is Frank Ferencic. Frank is an internationally recognized leader in health and performance education with decades of teaching experience, and he also has black belt rankings in karate and aikido. Frank has traveled to Africa on several occasions to study human origins and the ancestral environment and how it relates to our current movement practices. Frank is the author of numerous books about health and the human predicament, including The Exuberant Animal, which is the book that I originally read that led me to Frank's work. 
On today's show, Frank goes into many important elements of our ancestral nature and our humanity that can help athletes not only recover better and train better, but can also help increase enjoyment of the training process. These elements include human biorhythms, dance, play, exploration, getting in the dirt, the benefits of training in nature, purpose-driven movement, and more. No matter where you are on the coach or athlete spectrum, you can get so much out of this show. It's, <laughs> I love talking about training setups and exercises and everything that goes with that. But if we fail to look at who we are, we miss out on so much, not only on um, training results and preventing injury, but also, again, just enjoying that process and developing uh, more meaning in what we do. This podcast is truly important, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did putting it together. One last thing before we get started with the show is that my online course, Elastic Essentials, has launched this past week, and the cart will close for the course on Friday, October 22nd. So chances are, if you are listening to this right when this podcast comes out, you can still get in on the course. The reviews have been great, and I hope you have a chance to join us there. All right, let's get on to episode 277 with Frank Ferencic. Frank, I love the idea of observing nature to know oneself and how we should train and, and just learning more about, um, I guess, human athletics by observing nature. What are some key trends that we see in the animal kingdom in terms of physical movement that you feel we really should pay attention to when it comes to how we move ourselves? Right. Well, in the animal world, of course, it's all about function. And this is something that is key to survival for every species. So animals move, and by that I mean non-human animals, are always moving with some sort of purpose in mind, and it's all related to habitat and the demands of survival. So there is no emphasis on appearance. And that is that the lights really went on for me when I trained a little bit with the physical therapist Gary Gray and Vern Gambetta, the, co the athletic coach, and they were constantly emphasizing function. So I was, this the lights really went on. I said, okay, this is exactly what's happening in the animal world. This is what athletes need to pay attention to. And it's, it's a really exciting place to begin the conversation because we've kind of gone astray. There's so much emphasis now, especially in the world of fitness, about appearance. And that's really not an issue in the animal kingdom, except for rare circumstances. So we, um, we always put the emphasis now on locomotion and function and whole body function in particular. And that's, that's what non-human animals are all about. In your uh, book, Exuberant Animal, you talked about, like, basically, how does your dog uh, approach exercise, right? Like, uh, compared to how humans would go. Oh, yeah. And I, and I should have said animal because we are animals, right? Like I said, animals versus oh, yeah. humans. Um, but what are some key traits of how um, just we would observe in nature in the sense of um, like some things you mentioned were like not knowing how far you're going to run or having multiple, like moving multiple times throughout the day? What are some some things that we might see there that are probably quite different than how we typically exercise or uh, approach exercise in the course of a day? Right. Well, I think the thing to remember is that our sports are really movement specialties. And that's a distinction that we often forget. For, for non-human animals, such as my dog, it's all about being opportunistic. And it's always about fitting into whatever is happening at the moment. 
So you've got to be, if you're a dog <laughs> or any creature, you've got to be really flexible and your, um, your efforts will depend on conditions in habitat. So it's always about, it's always context dependent and you might be hitting it really hard one day, really easy another but in general, what we see, uh, animal behavior people always refer to this, this rhythmic oscillation of effort. And this even goes back to ancient uh, prehistory for humans, which some people have called the Paleolithic rhythm, where um, our ancestors would go out and hunt. And that would be a stressful experience, a lot of exertion. And that might last for a day or two or three days, whatever it is, to go out and have a successful hunt. And then you come back to camp and then you rest for a period of time. It might be several days. And then you go out hunting again. And this kind of rhythmic oscillation, this rhythmic pattern of activity, this is what we see all over the animal kingdom. And the only exception to that is in modern human athletics, where there's this, this constant striving all the time that's divorced from habitat. It's, it's almost as if we are training in a bubble now. So it's, it's good to remember our roots. Yeah, so you're saying that the, just the more natural rhythms, it really encourages rest versus the more modernized we've made sport. It just, uh, it, it just destroys that rhythm i guess you could say like there's not as much time for rest through it or is there any sorry just uh, looking into that a little bit more right um well i could tell you about my journey to gombe in tanzania and that's where the chimpanzees live and that's where jane goodall did her work and it was so amazing to go out in the forest and hang out with the chimpanzees because they are our closest relatives in the animal kingdom and 98% of their DNA is identical to ours. And these animals don't do any kind of training per se. They don't do any effortful striving towards a goal. Everything that they do is either hunting or playing or chasing each other around or exploring or having sex, one of these things. And they don't do anything that we would identify as training. But they're incredibly physical animals. I mean, you, when you go out into the jungle in Gombe, you have to carry a gun with you because chimpanzees are so incredibly strong and they can be aggressive. So I, I began to look at training in a whole new way after my journey to Gombe. And you you kind of lose interest a little bit in the movement specialties and try and make exercise movement training, all of that more relevant to habitat. Sure. I like, um, I like the word I wrote it down, the effortful striving, uh, in one of the books I really like, uh, in the athletic training world is called easy strength. And it just talks about basically like there comes a point where the weight gets too heavy it's almost that's where the induction of too much effortful striving comes in, if that makes sense. And it, yeah. it, as you talk about animals, because I've thought about, well, what's the difference between like goal setting um, and then like trying too hard to achieve it? You know what I'm saying? Like looking at people who can just move and flow and have more just in the moment purpose uh, versus wh at what point do we separate? And now we're like really turning on our human, you know, forebrain, our will, and we're going to strive for this. I hope that makes sense. I'd be curious to, for you to unpack that a little bit. 
Right. Well, a, a thought experiment would be to go back to Gombe and take some medicine balls with you or take some weightlifting gear with you and see how the chimps might respond. And my guess is that you could you could engage chimpanzees to throw a medicine ball around and they would probably do it with with great vigor and and great enjoyment. And they might even relish the idea of using a heavier medicine ball. So there's more physicality involved in the process, but there would come a point where that, and they're very good at listening to their bodies. There would come a point where they they would just say, Hey, this is no fun anymore. This is too much for me. And I don't see any kind of payoff (laughs) to, to doing more than that. So, I mean, obviously, if you want to be an elite athlete, you're going to have to push yourself beyond what is normally comfortable. And that's that's just the nature of that that endeavor. But for most of us, most of the time, you can think like a chimpanzee and enjoy the physicality and then ease off when it's no fun anymore. That, that's a perfectly valid way to do it. Yeah, I I as you talk about that, I think about the idea of the majority of our training should be like that, like purposeful, fun, and we're we're aware of ourselves. We understand when it is no fun anymore. And then there is that, like you said, to be an elite athlete, there is the pushing element beyond the typical. And I fully respect that too. But it's almost like I think about the balance, like depending on your goal, there should be probably a ratio of, of some. Uh, mm-hmm. I So I think about there is that time to push, but I think that athletes very easily get lost in that like oh i have to lift this weight i have to do more reps i have to get this and then eventually that breaks your ability to be consistent and mm-hmm. slow moving up where it's too much will too much of that so I, I i just think about the balance and then if not anything else also just more of the purpose more of just the fun and i'm in the process and i'm just enjoying being a animal on this planet training and moving and interacting Right. And this also brings up the distinction between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And for the playful athlete, the, the motivation is primarily intrinsic. You're doing it because you love it and it just brings you so much pleasure. But then if you layer on extrinsic motivation on top of that, you can maybe pull that athlete into a higher level performance. But now you're playing a different game. You're you're chasing rewards that are outside of your body and outside of the pleasure that you would normally get. And now it's it's almost an entirely different endeavor. And I think that the thing, the return that we have to do is to get back to these intrinsic motivations, the pleasure that comes with moving our body athletically. And that's that's what we experienced when we were kids. And that's a, a powerful source of motivation. I couldn't agree more. I mean, there's so much like just burnout and, and mental burnout in athletics and a lot of like mental health as well. And I, I can't help but think that a lot of that is due to athletes constant. I mean, again, it's good to have some push, but it's like when it's just constant push, 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 and you can't fall back into just being a kid in that like playful, just joyful, exuberant state, you know, where it's like that balance is too far onto pressure and outputs and push yourself more. And and we glorify that so much too. And I mean, it is good to push yourself, but we're so unbalanced, I think, at times with it. Right. And we're looking for the well-rounded athlete, mm-hmm. the holistic athlete who is capable of doing a lot of different things and who has a, a balanced approach to life. I think that's that's kind of a classic Greek ideal of the well-rounded athlete. And we, we've definitely lost touch with that. 
Yeah, I, I'd be interested in studying more of that, you know, that Greek idea, like looking into history and, and what have different, um, like just different cultures throughout history viewed as as being fit. Like, uh, and I think that they did appreciate physiques, right? Like, I mean, that you got the statues and stuff like that. But I, I'm curious, like if there was, I don't know, if, if there was Instagram back then, not that I think that's a good thing for, <laughs> that's not a good thing for fitness in many ways. Uh, but I wonder what they would prioritize, say this is like the pinnacle of of being fit and healthy and moving well. Right. Well, one thing I think that we've lost, another way to talk about this is the power of the inverse U curve. And the inverse U is a curve that we see. It's a graph that we see all over the world of physiology and even out into ecosystems where you get a rising benefit depending on effort or quantity. And then you reach a tipping point and then diminishing returns and then a negative outcome on the other side of the graph. And that is so ubiquitous. We see it everywhere in physiology. You know, eat a little bit more, eat a little bit more, you get a little bit more payoff, and then you eat too much. And now you get the reverse. And this is the same thing in the world of training. And it's, I think our culture has got, has lost sight of the inverse U curve. We've lost sight of the fact that diminishing returns are likely to come. We, we've lost sight of the fact that the dose makes the poison. The dose makes the medicine. And part of that is, um, is marketing and advertising, which is all about commercializing our success and having tons of extrinsic reward. So, the wisdom here, the sapience, I think, lies in remembering the shape of the inverse U curve. Sure. Uh, I when you were talking about the chimps, I was thinking about this too. I, I was I like watching my own children, and I imagine that watching children play is uh, children human human children is probably right. fairly similar to animal children in how they like, or yeah, or, or just animals in general in many ways in how they process things. Because I was thinking about how. I have some kettlebells like in my basement, for example, and my kids will see me lifting them or they know their weights and they let, they want to identify with the exercise. So they'll just try to pick them up, but they're not trying to do it to train. They just want to see if they can lift it. Like that's just, and I'm fine with that. I know the kids and weights, I actually don't want my kids doing serious weightlifting until they're, uh, you know, past their growth spurt and whatnot. Uh, right. but I, um, I like watching them just interact with something that we associate with fitness because they, it's like as soon as it's too heavy, they don't like strain to try. They're just like, ah, oh, too heavy. They just wanted to see if they could do it. And then they'll go off and they like playing with like bands and jumping around way more, you know, like kids should. So it's just interesting to see that. Right. Yeah. The, the, the child's body is, is quite intelligent. And there's I don't think we give our animal bodies enough credit for knowing what's going on. And the, the body is vast. The body is unbelievably sophisticated. So I think we just need to listen more. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Do you have any thoughts on like just cultivate, like say someone who's really been into the formal training space for a long time, traditional training space. Do you have any ideas or thoughts on just how to be more like mindful, more awareness to kind of get back into the parts of yourself that you feel like are um, just like, like, like an animal would be mindful or a child would be mindful or things like a more, more mindful approach to what you're doing? Well, I think diversity is always good. So get out of a specialization if that's where you're at um you can still move but move in different ways is you know if you've been uh doing endurance sports for a long time maybe try the strength training or or try dance or to do something different is really important i think that the typical arc for the specialist now is you train really hard as a young person 
And then you get to middle edge and you start getting injured. And then all of a sudden you're up against it and people start to freak out at that point. And that's the time you really have to listen and say, okay, what is my, that, that pain, that injury, that is information. It's trying to tell you something. You don't want to mask it. You want to listen. So try something different and uh, you might even try resting, <laughs> for example. <laughs> Yeah, those those that those rhythmic cycles of of work hard and rest and yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that one. You you spoke on dancing, and so I want to ask you a question about this, Frank. And one of the things that you talked about in the exuberant animal that I really loved was where you said, um, like dancing was the original PE, and I love mm-hmm. that. I, I just explain a little bit more about that and what that means for uh, physical education, movement, and and our society in general. Right. Well, you don't have to know that much about human history. You've got hunting and gathering, actually scavenging before that because we're smaller hominid bodies, but then hunting and gathering. And you can imagine a setting where maybe the tribe had had successful hunts and then they're around the campfire. And the first thing to happen is people say, hey, I'm feeling good. I've I've got a bounce in my body and I'm gonna move, especially in the transverse plane. It's not sagittal movement now, it's transverse plane movement. And that everybody in the tribe is gonna pick up on that movement. And you, so you've got this group cohesion and it's even more than that because um, a lot of the, the indigenous tribes would see dancing as a way to enter the spirit realm. And in the spirit realm, you might be able to contact um, and influence the hunt coming up. So there, there was significance there, but this was a very early form of movement that we've seemed to have. Well, once again, we've turned it into a specialization and that's a mistake. I think we can, we, you know, we can't keep, teach our children to hunt necessarily, maybe to gather a little bit, but we can definitely teach them dance. And that's, that's an easy thing to do. Yeah. I've been really, um, well, I'm just mindful in general of everything my kids do, uh, who are three and five, by the way, like just everything they do physically and just that they're able to have a rich, diverse experience. And I'm always mindful of putting some music on every now and then, and just, you know, just having like a family dance party and stuff like that. And I, that the more I work with athletes too, the more I just feel and sense how important like athletes who have rhythm and athletes who don't and how that manifests and even just simple stuff, like even things like just like little uh, reactive single leg jump tests. For example, I was doing uh, a single leg jump, like a reaction test on a mat the other day. And I noticed that the athletes who were way better at the rhythm stuff that we were doing prior to were actually just better at that that test. They had like more twitch. They had more like just twitch in their ankle, if that makes sense, versus yeah, the yeah. ones who didn't. It was just the slower, more drawn out type deal. And uh, yeah, I, I've just been way more observant of noticing that ability in athletes the more I, longer I've been coaching. Right. And it's, it's all over sports like basketball. I mean, dribbling the ball, that's the rhythm. That's almost a drumming exercise in itself. But even... Even other sports, there's a, there's a preload into the movement and then the actual explosion into the movement. That's rhythmic as well. It's even you even see it in places like like rock climbing where it's subtle. There's a there's a move away from the move and then into the move. There, there's rhythm everywhere. So drumming and dancing are fundamental to all of this. <laughs>
I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about uh, hypnosis and mental training for athletes. Uh, While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365 day money back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. I never thought of that with basketball, but it makes perfect sense. And like just like the beat and then there's creativity and you can like beat and then move your, you know, come up with different moves and things like that. I back when I was in high school, I played basketball in high school and my on my off days when I wasn't like doing hard training, I would just shoot around and dribble. And I think I almost take it for granted how beautiful of a recovery stimulus that was for me because I get to just yeah, I get that vibration. And there's that even without thinking about it, it's rhythm. There's rhythm to this. There's dance. There's a vibration that's almost healing your body and helping you. Absolutely. Yes. Do you, uh, in the course of um, just like a, like a, a movement session for anyone, really, I mean, I, I've seen work that you do where you have a lot of like dynamic and diverse movement. Do you have like, I mean, outside of just, I guess, say, hey, do more dance, like, is there simple ways that you would introduce rhythm into a group setting just for people to be able to work with that on a basic level? Well, when I do a workshop, oftentimes we'll bring drums in in the evening. We'll have our dinner. We'll, we'll bring the drums in and we'll do essentially what's a, a hippie jam so that we just start drumming. There's no set pattern. Somebody sets up a beat and then we fill in the beat however we can. And it, it works great. It, it eventually coalesces from noise down to <laughs> some kind of um, consistent rhythm. And then I encourage people to just move their body however they want. And there's no judgment. There's no, there's no evaluation. There's none of that. It's just do what you want and feel it. And it's really exciting to do that. Yeah, I love that. I like the idea, too, of just the there's there's it's just a beat like there's not even lyrics on. There's probably not an idea of what you should how you should dance to this song or this thing. It's just just creative movement on its most base level. Right. Yeah. I was at a uh, museum in Seattle at one point. They were doing a exhibition with some primal art, native art. And there was a video. Actually, it was a movie taken in West Africa, and I believe in the early 1960s. And so it was in black and white and it was authentic. I mean, this was very few white people had ever been to West Africa at this point. And you could see the people just enjoying their bodies and just enjoying the movement. There was no judgment, no evaluation. It's just, hey, it's a nice evening. Let's move. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I just find that it's interesting as soon as you put rhythm. I mean, again, you were doing it outside of like a training session. Since I only see athletes in the scope of a training, the training session, we'll do it for the warm up sometimes and then... And that's, right, right. which is still lots of fun, but I, I, it does make me think about 
just the the importance of just doing it just for the sake of movement, just for the sake of being in creativity and just not even necessarily tying it to anything, just enjoying yep. the process. Yeah. Your brain loves it. <laughs> yes. Oh, I believe it. I, I will say too, like do, doing warm ups with rhythms and beats, I'll, I'll see athletes and myself like we'll jump higher, run faster at the end of it. Then when, if we would have just, you know, just said, all right, you know, normal music, but you're not doing any beats or anything like that. Right. And that would be an easy addition to training facilities that we see all over the country, you know, various college weightlifting rooms and athletic training facilities, bring drums in and use them. That would be an easy thing to add that would, it, it would increase enjoyment. And I think it would increase performance too. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's why like everything that makes us you know, a human and animal, like, I think we just don't think about that stuff enough. I, and it is sad on a level that we have to tie it to outputs, but that shows that it's valuable. Like that shows that it right, right. did something like the fact that I could warm up to something that it was at the core of my humanity that I need. And I did better. Like, that's good. Let's do more of this. And it's, you know, and you see the smile on people's faces too. And the inherent enjoyment that, that just feeds into that. I've heard from great like swim coaches I work with. Happy swimmers are fast swimmers. Like it's <laughs> right. it's, it's not yeah. just the training. There's so many elements that go into it. Nice. Uh, so what I want to ask you, Frank, about um, I'm sure we could talk about this for a long time on this show, but how play and exploration uh, change. So we're talking about human elements, animal elements. Um, how does play and exploration change how we adapt to something or influence how we adapt to something? So if we're playing versus well, just, you know, do go do that and do it like this and do 20 reps or something, you know what I'm saying? Like just some key elements of play in, in how we move. Right. Well, f the first thing to realize about play is that all mammals play. So you've got 4,000 some species of mammals. They all play and play is ancient. It's probably some tens or maybe even hundreds of millions of years old. So it's deeply wired into the primate, the mammal body. And this is something that is valuable and we don't totally understand it, but we do understand what happens when we're deprived of play. And this is an easy thing to do uh, to study in the laboratory. You can, you can look at rodents uh, they typically have a window of opportunity in their development when play is really important. And if you isolate those rodents from, from their peers, take them out of the cage, put them away at, in isolation so that they can't play during that time, they will grow up to have huge social deficits and dysfunctions. So we know that play is absolutely essential, even though we don't totally understand it. And I think it, again, it gets back to this intrinsic motivation that the young animal and, and I would say particularly young men have a just burning desire to explore and adventure and to find out what they're made of. And this is, you can tell these these athletes, these young men and women, what they're made of, but it's not the same thing. We have to discover it's got to be an experiential learning. And that is something that I think we kind of deprive one another of when we put so much emphasis on expertise and authority of, you know, people who know how to do it and tell you how to do it, know that the, the young animal needs to find out for him or herself. So it yeah, plays the way. Yeah, I think I, I, 
the growing consensus, at least I hope amongst coaching is that we should say less, that we should, I just did a <laughs> podcast with uh, Kibway Johnson, who is a, a elite and, and one of the best um, hammer throwers in the history of the United States. And just talks about everything that a coach basically says from the time that you, or the everything you try to impose on yourself from the time that ball starts spinning, you can kind of only go down from there in the sense of just <laughs> achieving this harmony. And then I think about like just how that goes with kids and how so kids get coached up so early, like they get into their sports. Yeah, yeah. It's even, even outside of the sports specialization, because it's like once they get in that, like if they're just doing a sport early and it was all play, like just kids playing futsal together or stickball in the street, that's like, that's great. But it's like, as soon as the adults get involved, do it this way, it, you know, like that changes everything. And I, we just don't think about that. And that it's crazy with the window. I never knew there was that, like, if I don't play enough at this age to this age, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I don't know what it is for humans. I'm sure you know, that probably like what, two to 10 or something, but that's. Yeah, 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 it's true. And boy, I, I gave a workshop to some PE teachers a few years ago and they were working with younger kids and they said they had a, like a 10 part lesson plan on how to throw a ball. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, this is no good because it, I think a young primate should be able to yes. figure out how to throw a ball perfectly well on his own. But uh, they wanted to instruct on every movement and get you know perfect biomechanics in seven-year-old kids, and I thought it was way too much. So there's got to be a discovery by the young athlete. Yeah, really important. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It's like yeah, Kibway Johnson said. Basically, we're just we're we're taking the artistry completely out of sport by doing that. Now we don't have artists anymore. Now we just have some sort of manufactured machine <laughs> thing that came out the back end of it so which is right. like really boring i feel like especially like in the espn top 10 you don't see a bunch of machines you see human beings animals doing incredible things complex things artistic things and then we go to these fundamental sports skills like you said that people should be able to learn my son is three and he was throwing rocks with pretty good ability at like before he was two like and right. I, so I, I taught him like yeah just start throwing stuff you're gonna figure it out yeah, and I think we have to remember to trust the human animal because all that stuff is, all that capability is there. We just have to allow it to flourish and remember the chimpanzees at Gombe. They didn't have, there were no guys walking around with clipboards. There was no, there was no evaluation. There was nobody teaching them how to do anything. And yet they were this, these fearsome athletes. So it's all there for us. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally believe that. Do you have any take on, um, you know, I know this goes, this is going a little bit more to the coaching end of things, but any take on like when to like our human side, our, you know, human side, we'll, we'll put our coaching hats on, like just any advice or thoughts on when to actually coach things versus just letting the human explore and figure it out and, or, or anything balance you strike in the session movement sessions you might do. Right. Well, I would, I would just be very wary of specialization. Um, even up through high school, I think high school is a good time to dabble and try a bunch of different arts. And if, if kids want to specialize on their own, that that's great. But I would wait as long as possible. I didn't get involved in the martial arts until I was about 20. Hmm. And you know, from a performance point of view, that was too late. You know, I, a coach might say, well, that's just too late to develop any great movement skills. 
but I did okay. You know, I didn't start specializing until I was 20. And then I hit it really hard and I developed enough capability to really enjoy myself. And that was that was quite satisfying. So I didn't become an elite performer, but I, I got pretty good. So I think this rush to specialize is really kind of misplaced. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's always a rush. So it's, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just love that about just the, the, just the play thing itself. Like just, just knowing that should be enough to deter. But again, there's so many other factors sadly at play with, you know, people, opportunistic youth sports uh, associations trying to scoop up kids and get them started early. Totally different. Yeah. Um, You mentioned um, desert animal and jungle animal. This was really fascinating to me. I'd love to ask you about this because I think so oftentimes like Mm. in uh, and maybe it can be it's very contextual. Like if you're training a group of athletes in a sport like sprinting, yes, you should train like a jungle animal. But like but I mean, just like the history of different uh, where different movement types came from, because so often like the speed power community will say, oh, jogging's stupid. Don't jog like that's dumb or, you know, like that's bad for you even or you know, like we, we tend to be judgmental of various forms of fitness. And I think it's interesting to look right. at, well, the roots, like where, what's the core of this? So yeah. Could you explain a little bit about the, the desert and jungle, um, the origins of those types of movements? Right. Well, if you think about your birth, you think about being born, the, the human animal doesn't really know what kind of habitat you're going to live in. And so what the body does is generate specific adaptations to the imposed demands, the demands that are imposed by habitat. And if you happen to be born in a jungle, that well, that's going to be a completely different set of demands, and your body will adapt to that. And those demands will include things like climbing trees or maybe uh, shorter periods of movement. But if you're born in a desert, boy, you, you better have that endurance thing going. So that's the beauty of being a human is that you can diversify. You can do these these various things really pretty well. And so the the arguments, I think, don't hold a lot of water because the beauty here is that, wow, we can do just about anything and benefit our health. And we can have enjoyment from doing any of those things. So it depends what you like. And that's the other thing about living in the modern world. We can, we can pick and choose. And that's, that's a luxury that we, we didn't have in prehistory. So in prehistory, it's just you adapt to whatever environment you happen to grow up in. And that's great. So it's worth giving some thought to if you're a coach. It's like, well, this is one option. Uh, strength training is one option, but it could be enduro. And that's great. You know, you just choose. Yeah. I like just, I like it from the idea of thinking about like, where am I training now? Like what's my natural environment? Cause I, I love training in nature. And as I grow older, I just think more and more about it or how I could get athletes in situations where nature is involved. And mm-hmm. I think about how, when you are training, just realizing there's more to it than just the distance you're running or the jumps you're doing or the weight you're lifting. Like your what is surrounding you is also kind of influencing you, the way you perceive everything going on. And I like, for example, I, I like doing sprints down just trails in the woods that has stuff to jump over and like little like ups and downs and all these things that make me react. And I, I do it in minimal shoes and I just feel this connection and sense of reactivity and power. And I feel it's just it it helps so much. And 
but I can't, I, I don't have a desert near me, <laughs> but I imagine if I did and I was going to train, I, I think about like the Tamamara tribe, the, the born to run tribe, like the canyons right, right. of Mexico. Like I imagine it seemed like a pretty arid place. Like yeah, yeah. you can't help but think of what impact your immediate um, surroundings have on what you, like how it helps you, I guess, to become better at that thing. Like if you wanted to be better at like explosive things, like a, a that kind of diverse jungle environment versus if you want to be better at endurance, like. I don't know, training trip to the desert, maybe. I don't know. I'm just thinking about this, thinking about those things is interesting to me. Right. Well, what I've tried to do with people is encourage a bioregional approach to athletics. So everybody lives in a bioregion, a place where that has consistent flora and fauna that people can recognize. So if you grow up in the Pacific Northwest, the Seattle, Vancouver, you would live in a bioregion that people call Cascadia, and it's got mountains and water and, and typical vegetation. And then the idea is not to travel somewhere else to do your sport. The, the challenge is to invent movement challenges that are appropriate to that bioregion. And that, I think, is the challenge for the coming era, because to fly around the world and to you know, release all this carbon into the atmosphere from your jet plane to go fly mm -hmm. somewhere else to, to play your sport, that's looking less and less appropriate. It's more appropriate to if you live in the desert find a sport that's appropriate for the desert. If you live in the mountains, find a sport that's appropriate for the mountains and try and match those things up. And we, we have a lot of work to do there, but um, I think that's the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it just forces, um, I think like ingenuity too, like just yeah, like, yeah. how can I take advantage of this outside space that's local to me? And so that Actually, I mean, we may have already, might have already covered it, but maybe with the next question that I had planned, but maybe you can expand on it in any way you like. But I was going to ask you, so when we train and move, uh, what are some very key differences to you in being in a gym versus a natural setting? So what are, the, what are some of the, the distinctive advantages that being in nature is going to have over just being in a, a box with weights in it, basically? Right. Well, the, the box is insulated and it... There's certain advantages. There's certain things that you can only do in the box that you probably couldn't do outdoors. But the sensory element is totally changed. And in the gym, you have a lot of control over the movements that you do and the sensory inputs that you have. But outdoors now, you have to be a lot more adaptable and you have to be um, your sensory apparatus needs to be more engaged and you have to, for example, you have to be working your peripheral vision a lot more than you would in a gym. In a gym, you could get away with just looking straight ahead all the time. You're not worried about predators. You're not worried about things that might come out of the bushes. So when you're outdoors, your attention needs to be more expansive. And that's, that's really important. And of course, you, you get the natural variation. If you're running on a trail with lightweight shoes or even barefoot, that's a completely different challenge. It's more of a whole body challenge. And it, I, I'm certain that it impacts the brain in a completely different way. So that, that tactile experience that you feel your skin, you feel the hot and the cold, you feel the wind. You, your, even your olfactory system is engaged in a new way. It's much more holistic to be outdoors. And you might not do the great specialization outdoors, but that's okay. 
it's it's different <laughs> yeah even doing something that's kind of i guess quote unquote special even i guess running is kind of a specialized or can be if you're in track and field uh right. but i feel like even just doing the running doing something that would normally be more specialized in a natural setting where there is more sensation and um you talked in your book about like the biophilic need like for nurturance uh or we need oh. to you know we need to have good nutrition good community uh good movement but then that that nature being one of our primary needs like i'd be interested for you to chat a little bit more about that too right well this is a native indigenous idea this identification with the land and you hear this all over the place especially lately you're, you're hearing people say i am the land the land is me i'm the river the river is me i'm the forest the forest is me native people always identified with habitat and that is something that we've lost a lot of in the modern world we because of agriculture we don't participate in hunting or gathering our food we don't for a lot of us we don't even know where our food comes from so we're divorced from habitat and that's actually a primal human need it's that sense of attachment that we have to typically mom when you're born you have to attach to a caregiver but we also attach to habitat soon after that and most of us have some memory of the plants and the animals in our in our front yard, in our backyard, what the soil smelled like, what what the, the plants uh, felt like. That's a really important part of the developing brain. And so to train outdoors is to refresh that connection. And that's that's not trivial at all. That's really primal, really important. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I know just when I'm running in the woods, it's just just everything is amazing. Just the smell of even like like a deer across the path and being able to smell the deer and just smell it. Like it just really tunes you into the moment and it makes it a lot harder. I think to think, just have your mind be distracted and to think about everything else. Uh, back at uh, a college I used to uh, coach at, it was called Wilmington college in Ohio. And it was really interesting that, so they didn't have an indoor track. I think I still don't think they do did not have an indoor track to train in. But they still had a lot of success in track and field, and especially indoors compared to their uh, other schools. And one thing I, looking back on, I think was really interesting about this school was one: they had an arboretum, a uh, tree, you know, tree area that they trained in in the fall, and I took advantage of that in the fall as well. We would the sprinters would oftentimes we just I just make up um like just different distances and loops in that arboretum. We train there, and then <laughs> I remember one of my athletes in the fall. We were outside and it's getting colder in November, and he's like. Hey, where do we run inside? Or when it gets cold, I'm like, you're doing it right now, buddy. And uh, I mean, we did go inside, but I mean, for a lot of those athletes, if it was warm enough, you go outside. And I, the more I think about it, I mean, they did have really good success. They had some really fast teams indoors, having to improvise indoors, but also shovel off the track and run in lane one when it's cold. And I actually think that that is a powerful element of having to keep doing that without, I think, without one of those things you get without realizing it. Right. And this reminds me of a great athlete in the mid 20th century, uh, Jim Thorpe. And he's widely regarded by especially the old pundits as one of the greatest athletes of all time. And he had a, a very much a primal natural training method where he would he would ride horses, he would chop wood, he would be out in the woods. 
doing that kind of thing in the off season. And then he would show up for track and field practice and just blow people away. And he was, he had that rhythmic training seasonal training program that really worked for him. So that's, that's a good model. The Jim Thorpe model. Oh, I love that. I just had um, uh, Gavin McMillan on the show who I think he grew up in Canada. He said, and I believe he was talking about when he would like just to have to do manual labor, working on the farm, like doing those like chores. And you hear about those people who they're, they're doing outdoor or indoor, like chores, like farm chores as an off season, like they're strong and they're, they're adaptable. Like it's, I don't, it's, and a, yeah, we'll try to recreate it in the gym, right? Or I'll get, grab a sledgehammer and start hitting the tire or whatever, working triplaner. But it's, to me, it's not the same. Like doing something in the off season that's actually divorced from quote unquote training. You're outside, you're in nature, you're doing something for the purpose of that thing. Um, even myself, I remember that when I was uh, in college track and field, my summers, I would work, I worked moving to just make money for school and it was hard work and a lot of it was indoors, but a lot of times it'd be outdoors, you know, go out to the truck, come back in, like you're carrying things. And honestly, that was some of the best training I think I could have asked for because it was totally devoid of track and field. You're working with other people, you're communicating with them, you're doing a job like, and it's very functional because you're doing the gate cycle and walk. It was just I, I think about how lucky I was actually to do that job as difficult as it was. I think it was awesome off season training for me. Oh yeah. The blue collar stuff is really underrated. Um, I was involved with a lot of construction and home remodel stuff. And a lot of that's just really awkward work and difficult and fatiguing. And you have to constantly be creative in how you use your body. And that's, I think what refreshes your, uh, your connection and it's great. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I love that story about Jim Thorpe too. I'll have to look into that and maybe I'll put something in the show notes um, of this yeah. website about that. I like even just like riding horses and like um, with uh, before I, I ask you the next question, actually, I, I didn't have this on the list, but I thought about it from your book and just being in nature, but you talked about the importance of getting in the dirt or I think. And so, I mean, tell me a little bit about just actually getting one's hands in nature and like how that is beneficial. Right. Well, this this brings up the whole subject of the microbiome, which is pretty hot, sexy topic these days. And of course, it turns out that our bodies are inhabited by by many millions or trillions even of microorganisms. And it's interesting to look at the origin of that, because when you're born, you're coming down the birth canal and that's when your first contact with these microorganisms. But the second point of contact is with the soil of the place that you inhabit. So for in prehistory, this was always your local habitat. You're born, you contact the ground almost immediately, or maybe somebody wraps you up with a fur of an animal. And that's also from local habitat and the, the foods that you eat and the sucking on mom's nipple, that, that all that stuff is local microorganisms. And so now the the flora inside your body is totally consistent with the habitat that you live in. And that's been completely thrown into chaos now, the way we travel all over and the way we sanitize surfaces. And so our microbiome now is completely out of whack. And the way to get back to that is to put your hands in the dirt and to actually contact the soil or, or run barefoot. The other thing that's really good, and I, I benefit from this a lot, is going climbing. You climb the rocks, you're always getting 
contact with dirt and microorganisms and it's it's bound to be beneficial yeah i love it i just so i think people don't understand how excited this conversation makes me just in the sense of <laughs> i think in coaching and even my own young coaching journey like going through my my late teens and 20s and it's just all the training methods it's this many sets and this many reps and this exercise and this blend of exercises but yet it's like all of a sudden you just forget about everything you did when you were a kid and just playing in the, I remember playing in the dirt. I remember when I was three, just, I had this spot. I would just dig in the backyard. <laughs> my, oh, yeah. my parents let me. And I, and I think we, we take so much of that for granted in this like hyper sterile environment. And it's like, I, I think about the thing that comes to my head is like, you know, the mate in the matrix, the movie where like the human is just inside this thing. It's a battery and it just has a program played in its head and it's just cut off from obviously nature and everything outside of it. And we are moving. It's, we could talk about training all we want, but we are so moving in that direction where we are so cut off that, mm -hmm. yes, you can have the, the best training system and data and technology. And yeah, it's, it's certainly going to help or be helpful in context. But at the end of the day, we're missing the low-hanging fruit, which is just being a stronger and more connected human being that will also plug you into just the joy. And, and I just I get um, just the joy that you get with being in that environment. So. Uh, you're this definitely uh, I, I love it man I, I just um, I think we just take for granted that stuff or even like playing I used to have athletes play games like where they'd be outside and pulling on like like tire tug of war in the dirt outside in the dirt kind of thing you know you don't think about just all these hidden benefits that exist in these activities right and there's even a um, person to person transfer of microorganisms that you would see in something like wrestling or judo, jujitsu, any of the martial arts where you're grabbing somebody's wrist and you're not just grabbing skin, you're grabbing microorganisms too. And there's got to be a sharing of microorganisms going on there, which is bound to synchronize the physiology of the group to some extent. And that's that's unexplored territory. I, I think we, we have yet to really understand how that works. But yeah, you talk about how like play, we don't entirely get it. And that's the thing is like, it's almost like we're waiting to like have all the, you know, the sciencey stuff out on, on all this, like exactly detailed and exactly quantified before we're like ready to pull the trigger. But it's, <laughs> I, I've heard, um, and then Austin Yoakum, who you were on his podcast, I know is really like a lot of human contact stuff in his warmups. And I've heard, I forget what podcast I heard this, but people were talking about like when they do an hour of jujitsu and they have the physical contact that comes with that, they feel more recovered, actually. Like, outside of the fatigue that the jiu-jitsu would bring, they feel more recovered for interacting. And you get the human touch element, too, which we're wired for. So it's just there's so many little extra things going on there. Right. That human touch, well, I also do massage therapy. And that is fundamental to recovery and calming the nervous system, putting us more into this parasympathetic feed and breed kind of state. When other people touch you in a kind and loving way, or even in a sporting kind of athletic way, it's it's calming and it's it makes the organism feel safe. And that's that's vital for all of us. Yeah. Oh yeah. I couldn't agree more. I guess the if you didn't have access to a massage therapist, I guess the, the poor man's version is just, you know, roughhousing in a safe, you know, respectful and, and fun way, I guess. Yeah, or just yeah, something like absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. Okay, cool. Uh, well, just a few more questions here. And uh, I'll ask you about stress, too, because uh, I think that's a just getting away from our, our evolution, our humanity is, I'm sure, is a huge, massive source of stress. 
Um, what are um, just some real low-hanging fruits, Frank, on how we can deal with stress better, uh, having known like, or, and where it comes from with our, in context of our biology? Right. Well, the, the standard recipe is pretty well known by now. And the idea is to get some rhythmic activity, rhythmic engagement of the world. The body loves rhythm and it will, it will respond to that. The problem with the modern world is that the stimuli is so chaotic that the autonomic nervous system is just whipsawed every day because we get these conflicting messages, send us into fight, flight one moment, and then the next moment back into feed and breed and left, right, left, right all the time. And that's pretty crazy. So having some consistent pattern of rhythm is really important, but, but a lot of athletic training does provide that. So, so that's pretty well taken care of. The other prescription we hear all the time now is meditation, and that that's a good one. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, I have people sit quietly in workshops, just focus on the breath. There's not really, I don't bring a lot of sophistication into that, but I think it's a valuable thing, even if you do it just for a little bit. Um, people, your body will respond to that. and. It doesn't doesn't take a whole lot, but quiet time is is huge as well. And you don't even have to be in meditation. So that means turning off a lot of the electronics. For me personally, I made a decision uh, last month or I'm sorry, last year not to take my phone with me when I go out on a walk and I leave my phone with me in my in my office. And it's. it works like a landline, you might say. And that's been a big stress reliever. So some of these things are, are easy and, and pretty well known. But it's having a sense of control, a sense of predictability, and a, a sense of social support. Those are the big ones on, um, on stress relief. Yeah, what you said about the just like the phone or the, the just the noise uh, in our society it makes me think about uh, Paul Checks talked about Dr. Quiet and yeah. In in your book, you t- you talk a lot about noise, like even how I mean, just all the ambient sounds of being in a you know a, a an urban setting and how that actually can mess with us. Could you go into a little bit of that as well? Well, again, it's 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 an assault on the autonomic nervous system, and it's important to realize how historically abnormal this is. If you go on safari in Africa, you will realize because you go out on the Land Rover. And you drive for a long ways, and then they they stop, they shut shut off the Land Rover, and you are just struck by how quiet it is. And that's that would have been your daily life, mm-hmm. <laughs> no noise ever. And in contrast, what we have today is just overwhelming. So I have a pair of noise canceling headphones, and I wear them a lot. And I don't listen to the radio when I drive my car either. That's an easy fix because now driving is not an assault on me anymore. It's a peaceful time. And so there, there are things that you can do, but it's, it's a big challenge. And I think coaches can help with that and encourage people to find that quiet time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's something I've yeah, just been thinking about more and more. I was excited to see in your book and then, I uh, hear you talking about it just now. It's, it's so important. I, I'm probably going to, I just think about that. I'm going to make some more time for myself later today to <laughs> hopefully do that. Uh, I, I had a question for you that I, I'm really interested to ask you this, Frank. And 
that's uh, what do you feel the role of the athlete is in modern society? So where we are now versus maybe where it used to be, or how do you, what do you feel the role of like a, an athlete is now? Right. Well, the way it stands now, too much of athletics has entered into what you might call the entertainment industry. And it's great entertainment. I love watching the NBA and that that's wonderful. But I think the call for all of us now with, with so many of these planetary scale crises that are unfolding before our eyes, we need to have everybody on board. And I think everybody, every profession, every discipline needs to be doing what it can to be relevant to the challenges of the day. And I'm not seeing that in the athletic community. I think we encourage athletes to focus the lion's share of their attention on their own performance. And of course, it's that way. But the athlete also needs to to take a role in society. And that's why I'm really excited to see people like Colin Kaepernick who step up and say, hey, I, there's other things besides my sport. There are other things that, that I care about. And there are other things that I need to exercise my voice. And that, that kind of courage, I think, is really important. And it's really courageous. And it tells young people that there are other things. You know, you may, you may be a great athlete, but you also have responsibility to the rest of the world as well. Some of these, some of these athletes have a, what you might call a bully pulpit. They have a voice. And I would like to see more athletes speak out on, on some of the issues of the day. So that's, that's my opinion. And I, I really look to the athletic community maybe to play a larger role going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And this society, I, it does make me think about like, if we were all in a tribe, like, and there was, I mean, we probably wouldn't have professional sports if we were all in a tribe, but like the, the elite athletes, you know, it's just all about your, you know, giving back the community and the community and not losing that sense and what's important. I, I think that's, yeah, that's a big thing. Right. And the, the thing that we've seen in the 20th century the people who study the psychology of narcissism have done all kinds of surveys and they they've seen that narcissism has increased in modern society throughout the 20th century. And that's a New York times columnist, David Brooks calls this the big me, the selfie generation, right? And this people are becoming more and more individualized all the time. And I think athletes can help us break out of that and to maybe rediscover our shared predicament. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah they carry so much weight, this to professional sports. I've heard that yeah, athletics is like the doormat. Or I've heard the idea of, um, that with like a big university, like the athletics is like the front door. It's like the doormat almost to that school. It's, right. it's almost our common language. And so, yeah, how important for that to be that, that platform. Right. Right. And, uh, there's a lot more that can be done here and athletes I think can step up. So that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, lastly. So um, actually I had this thought. So as you were talking, I put it all together and what a, a do you think this would be a good like training session it would be first meditate, then play, play some games. Then you could do the training, whatever that is, and then have a dance party at the end or later that day. Would that be a pretty good, that'd be a pretty good flow. Oh, yeah. In fact, that's <laughs> what I try and do with my workshops. I, I, 
call myself an experiential designer. <laughs> so what I do is try and build in the rhythm, and the oscillation of challenge throughout the day, throughout the workshop, where we have some intense movement and then some downtime, some social time and some food, and then maybe some lecture and presentation, and then maybe another movement session and all kind of culminating in the evening meal and a good rhythm session at the end. So that works. And I think that the actual order of these things doesn't matter that much, but getting that, that opportunity for meditation, that opportunity for vigorous movement and that opportunity for social time, having that rhythmic is essential. So. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. As, as I've worked with just coaches who are organizational maestros, I notice how how much detail and importance they put on the, the team structure and the team, like the way, like having team leaders and getting groups together and mm -hmm. having, um, and not just, not just about the training, but also the way the team was interacting and dealing and learning from each other. And that being a big, that social element being a huge component of it. And so if I'm ever a head coach someday, that's, uh, that is absolutely something that 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought about. Um, but now it's, I realize just how important it is. Right. And the thing to remember is, the body learns via experience. I mean, experience is the language of the body. And so as a coach, I'm an experiential designer. And if I can create a good experience for that animal, then he or she's going to learn. And that's, that's, then I would have done my job. <laughs> yeah, so. absolutely. Sounds good. Well, hey, I think that's about all the time and got through most the vast majority of the questions here for you. So uh, I appreciate your time, Frank. Thank you so much. Uh, I learned a lot from you and, and it really just has me excited to get out for the, my next uh, run in nature or maybe somewhere else, maybe if, uh, okay. better, or to implement and leverage the, what I have around me. So I, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Yeah, I had a great time. So thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in for another show. And if you end up bringing your drums into the gym or for your next workout after this episode, please let me know. Uh, really enjoy you guys being a part of this show and this series. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest. And if you enjoy what you're listening to, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review uh, wherever you're listening to, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. We appreciate your support there. We'll see you next week.